Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. I'm Pim Fox, and it is my pleasure to welcome our next guest, Joseph Stiglitz. Professor Stiglitz was born in Gary, Indiana in 1943. Of course, he is a Nobel laureate, awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics along with two colleagues in the year 2001. He is the author of many books, including Globalization and Its Discontents, and he joins us here in studio. Professor Stiglitz, thank you very much for being here. I wonder if we could just start with a kind of anecdotal question having to do with Gary, Indiana. And we were just talking offline just a moment ago. Do you believe that growing up in Gary, Indiana influenced your perspective and your ultimate goal in learning about the way the world works? Oh, very much so. Uh, and I've actually written about that. Um, I became an economist because of what I saw growing up in Gary, Indiana. Uh, I had thought I was going to be a, a physicist, uh, a theoretical physicist, but as I uh, continued in my studies, what I had seen growing up, this enormous inequality, discrimination, episodic unemployment, labor strife, kept gnawing at me. And I finally decided uh, I wanted to understand that better. I wanted to... Uh, come to an understanding of how we could do better about these problems. And so that was really what drove me into economics. And I feel, you know, as I've studied economics, the perspectives that I bring are so different from those who grow up in a more privileged life in a rich suburb. Uh, one of the standard views in economics is that markets work very well. Uh, Everybody uh, is well-off, trickle-down economics, Pareto optimality, concepts like that. And uh, sort of a Pollyannish view of that, uh, of, of the world. And I could never share that Pollyannish view because I saw uh, it wasn't working for the people that surrounded me when I was growing up. In as far as you were able to take that experience and then use it in your understanding of economics, you helped to pioneer something that has been described as asymmetrical information. In other words, how do you take information that may produce dissidence or a lack of conformity in its result? And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you sort of square the circle, so to speak, or, or how do you reconcile a lot of those uh, inconsistencies? Well, the key issue that I faced as I began my research was to try to understand uh, the difference between the standard view of economics at that time, Adam Smith, the Markets, Invisible Hand, uh, uh, every uh, pursuit of self-interest leagues, the world to be as if uh, society's well-being was being maximized uh, with what I saw growing up. And that led to ideas about situations where markets don't work well and uncovering that 
there had been an implicit assumption that economists uh, hadn't really recognized for 200 some years, which was uh, the the idea that mar- information was perfect, and that a world in which information is very imperfect, where some people know things that others don't, is totally different from uh, a world in which information is perfect. It's a little bit like in physics, uh, we, we talk about a frictionless world and then a world with friction. And you would never construct an airplane based on a theory of a frictionless world. Uh, it, it, it just wouldn't make any sense. And yet, we were trying to construct an economy based on a frictionless world, and it wasn't working very well. Can you then take that perspective and speak to us about the current state of, let's say, trade negotiations or trade relationship between the United States and the world? I mean, we can talk China, you can mention Mexico, Canada, and so on, but I'm wondering if you could use that to describe what do you believe is the current feeling about these trade negotiations? Are they really headed somewhere intelligent, or is this just a political game? Well, I I think uh, the trade negotiations are not going uh, well uh, for anybody. And the reason uh, that's true is that, is really the blame is I I put in the United States, that uh, Trump does not have uh, any conception about what it is that he's trying to do, what is the problem facing the United States? Now, he says the problem is that we import more than we export. We have a trade deficit. And he attributes that to unfair trade. Uh, uh, They're taking advantage of us. But the basic insight of economics is that trade deficits are uh, not uh, based on uh, trade uh, with any particular country, it's what we call multilateral. Um, if we buy a little bit less clothes from China, we'll buy a little bit more from Malaysia or Indonesia. And uh, it won't make much difference for anybody. Uh, if we buy from somebody that's not the cheapest, our costs will be a little bit higher. Uh, it, it will make a difference for Indonesia, but not for the American uh, producers. Uh, what determines the overall trade deficit is what we call macroeconomics, the disparity between what we invest inside the United States and what we save inside the United States. And if we aren't saving enough to finance the investment, we have to borrow from abroad. And that borrowing from abroad uh, results in our exchange rate going up. And that leads to corresponding to that will be a trade deficit. So the problem in the United States is that we've been borrowing a lot from abroad. And the tax bill in December 2017 and the increase in expenditures in January 2018 uh, really blew a hole in our fiscal position. Uh, A lot of people talked about how we're going to have to borrow that much more from abroad. And what does that mean? That means we will have an even larger trade deficit. And that's true no matter what the outcome of any trade negotiations are. Those outcomes will determine 
which countries we buy from, but not our overall trade deficit. So no matter what his negotiators do, uh, it won't affect that basic economics. Now, where the negotiations do make a difference is uh, particular countries exporting particular goods or importing particular goods. Now, this is another area where Trump is really uh, very misconceived in his economics. Uh, modern economics recognizes that we are a service sector economy. Uh, we are our, our vibrant sectors, our financial sector, our education sector, our health sector. Um, these are among the areas where we're making, you know, where we're really successful. There are other areas where uh, we've moved on. Uh, automobiles, um, natural resources, uh, you know, uh, take... Uh, the president's talked about coal. Uh, in all of the extractive sectors together, including coal, uh, there are about half the number of workers as professional sports people. So if you say we want to have a coal policy, you ought to say we ought to have a sports policy. And you know, if you're talking about jobs, there are twice as many in those areas. There are five times as many jobs in solar insta panel installation than in the coal industry. So this was not the case in 1950s, 60s. We didn't have a solar panel. He's keeping looking back at the world as it was 75 years ago. That's not where we should be going. We should be going towards the 21st century. So his focus on the old world on the industrial world of the 1950s means that we're not reshaping our economy towards the 21st century. Is there a political obstacle to get these kinds of things done that you describe, whether it be the shift from coal and the jobs that were in the coal industry to, let's say, solar, just as an example, the solar industry? Is there a political obstacle? Because you've also written about the money that influences elections. Uh, very much so. Um, uh, the problem is the existing interests uh, don't want to give them up. And uh, they look to government for subsidies, for a monopoly power. Uh, we need... There is an important role for government, but it's for facilitating a transition to the new economy. Uh, it's for helping people get the skills that they're going to need in the new economy. You know, that's the role the government has traditionally played. Back after World War II, we had to move from agriculture to a manufacturing economy. And after World War II, we had the GI Bill. Uh, we said that everybody who had fought in the war, which was a, virtually every young man and a lot of women, could get as much education as they were qualified for. That was essential, not only as a basic sense of opportunity, but it was actually essential for the transformation from the, of the United States from agriculture to manufacturing. Today, we need to do 
a similar transformation from manufacturing to a new service sector, innovative, knowledge-based economy. And government isn't there to help us. In fact, the Trump government is focusing on back on uh, coal and all those other industries that we ought to be moving away from. Uh, so we need the help of the government not to protect the old industries, but to help us move into the more dynamic sectors where we'll be a lot more prosperous uh, and a lot healthier. I want to give you the opportunity to speak about the essential environmental industries that could be created or are being created, because this is a topic that you've done a lot of work on. Yeah. Well, I, I, as I mentioned, uh, solar panels have the opportunity, uh, potential, of creating so many more jobs than the coal industry. And at the same time, we know what coal does to our health. The particulate matter, the pollution, uh, not to speak of the global warming. And the impacts of global warming, we are now realizing, are much greater than when I began studying that matter 25 years ago. I was on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, and uh, we looked at the uh, climate change at that point. We said it was really serious, but we made a mistake. We did not anticipate how fast things were going to change and how bad they were going to be. Uh, the dimensions of this, the extremes of weather, um, you know, the United States lost about 1% to 2% of GDP just last year in the hurricanes. Uh, these are weather-related events, and there's absolutely no doubt that climate change, uh, global warming, is leading to more severe weather events, whether it's the hurricanes or the droughts, the fires that have affected, afflicted California. Uh, we're already paying an enormous price for that. So if we can make a little bit of investment in moving to these more dynamic, pro-environmental green policies, I think it will stimulate our economy but it will also help protect us against the ravages that we are already beginning to face. In about 30 seconds, what would you like young people to take away from your perspective about economics and what they can achieve? I think they should take away that uh, we can have as prosperous a world in the future as we had in the past, but it will not be... Uh, done by the market on its own. We are going to have to have an act of government policies, progressive policies, um, and the strategy of blaming others, whether it's immigrants or foreign trade, or un, uh, that is not going to bring America prosperity. What is going to bring America prosperity is investing in our future, not our past, but our future, and uh, 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 creating the kind of progressive environment that says uh, what we tried to achieve 70 years ago, uh, secure retirement, housing for all, health care, education for our children, jobs for all, these are all things that, that are within our grasp. We are a much wealthier country than we were 75 years ago. The question is, can we deploy that wealth in ways that will benefit all of us?
Thank you very much. Thank you very much for being with us, uh, Professor Joseph Stiglitz, Nobel Laureate, Professor of Economics at Columbia University and the author of Globalization and Its Discontents. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. The topic now is Sears. Sears Holdings, 125-year-old retailer filed for bankruptcy protection. It has been saddled with billions of dollars in debt. This uh, as it struggled to adjust to shifts in online consumption. Noel Hebert, our director of credit research for Bloomberg Intelligence, joins us now to tell us how did this happen and what's next. All right, Noel, uh, I have an idea how it happened, but I want you to explain how did it happen that Sears ended up saddled with all this debt, never mind the strategic issues having to do with competition in the retail world. How did it end up financially in this position? Well, I I think uh, those two items are definitely not mutually exclusive, right? So I I think, you know, when, and not to go too far back into the Wayback Time machine, but when Eddie had kind of brought Kmart out of bankruptcy. You're talking about Eddie Lampert, the uh, hedge fund manager who... uh, basically owns Sears. Correct. So via his uh, ESL investment fund, he had brought Kmart out of bankruptcy and then leveraged that to buy Sears back in 05. And back then he had a new way to run retail, which was basically to not invest in it, right? So don't invest in capital expenditures, try and cut back on employees and do all these things to basically maximize cash flow, which is a great short-term strategy, but it's not how retail works. Uh, and so through the accrual of that over years, they just, you know, it worked for the first four or five years, and then they started to lose money and lose more money and lose more money. And uh, the way that they funded that loss was to basically borrow money. What does Eddie Lampert want to do now with his holdings in Sears, given that they are in bankruptcy protection? Because mm-hmm. there's a discussion about buying a large portion of the company's store base. Yeah, and I think, you know, for. If I'm in Eddie's shoes, I think that that makes the most sense, right? I mean, to the degree that you've got four or 500 stores somewhere in this, you know, 900 plus store portfolio that are actually profitable and that you can build around, you start to think sort of of the adjacent pockets of value that you're trying to maximize, any creditor's trying to maximize here, right? Which is stuff like Kenmore, the services business or the auto parts business, or speaking specifically to Eddie Lampert and his ESL fund, the Ceritage real estate spinoff that they had uh, a few years back. Like those are all things that you need to try and preserve the value of. And if you just let this thing sort of wind its way down into a liquidation, you lose that. So in order to kind of keep the value attached to some of those assets, the thing you need to do is is sort of find a store base that you can build around. Noel, given the attempts in the past to revive Sears, is this an attempt to just get through this holiday shopping season rather than a big strategic rethink about what they do and how they do it? So I think that's really going to come down to uh, how contentious uh, the court proceedings get, right? So I, I think if if he can't get enough creditors to sort of play along, uh, then it'll be very, very difficult to sort of 
rebuild anything out of this. And you end up sort of in a Toys R Us situation where you've just got too many conflicting interests in the courts. The longer it drags on, the harder it is to resuscitate whatever is left of the retail business. I think if he can leverage his position as the largest creditor, so of the $5 billion and change of debt that the company has, he's half of that. If he can leverage that position somehow uh, into buying or securing, I guess, uh, you know, sort of uh, relief from uh, other creditors, then I think there's something he can do here. Because, again, I think it's not just about Sears itself, but it's about sort of how do you preserve, uh, you know, value. So Kenmore would be a great example, whereas, you know, there's some value attached to Kenmore if you have a still solvent Sears, but if you're in insolvency, you're only bidding for intellectual property that may be worth very, very little uh, to third parties without a Sears. Noel, based on what you know from these kinds of negotiations between creditors and debtors in Chapter 11 bankruptcy, can you tell us what the tone or indeed what kind of relationship, if any, do you believe would exist between those two groups at this point? Well, that's going to be uh, an interesting dynamic because I think the only real big uh, third-party creditor that we know about right now is Fairholme. Uh, who is involved with Eddie and ESL in terms of both on the equity side and on the credit side, they're going to be one of the largest creditors going in. And they obviously got hurt pretty substantially, not only on their equity exposure, which they've largely uh, exited, excuse me, um, but also on the 8% notes, which is their biggest piece, which are trading, you know, call it low teens. And that's obviously paper that they owned at par, right? So they're pretty substantially impaired. So Figuring out where they're going to be in this is going to be a big part of it. If they choose to make it contentious, um, then this this will probably have a pretty challenged end. Is this, is, is this why they couldn't reach a resolution out of court? Well, I think, uh, I guess there's probably a different, a number of different ways to sort of play that one. My, you know, tea leaves or however you want to phrase it, would be that it more came down to you need assets to restructure around. So if you think back to ESL's proposal from a few weeks back, which basically envisioned recapitalizing the entire balance sheet, um, but it also meant moving a lot of the assets that remain off the balance sheet. Uh, you know, the board is probably looking at that and saying, if we're going to restructure around anything, we can't do it without Kenmore. We can't do it without the real estate, et cetera. Uh, and so, you know, they might have been having a half an eye towards their own liability if this thing went into a Chapter 11. And what happened if they had just pretty much shipped all the valuable assets off the balance sheet and into ESL? Right. Um, so, so I think there's a couple of dynamics at play there. I want to thank you very much for sharing your information and experience with us. Noel Hebert is our Director of Credit Research for Bloomberg Intelligence, speaking about Sears Holdings filing for bankruptcy. President Donald Trump said that he is sending U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to meet with Saudi King Salman to discuss the fate of a Saudi dissident journalist who disappeared after entering the Saudi consulate 
in Istanbul. Here to tell us more about the situation is Ali Al-Ahmed. He is the founder and director of the Institute for Gulf Affairs based in Washington, D.C. And joining me here in studio is Toby Harshaw, Bloomberg Opinion Editor. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being here. Ali Al-Ahmed, maybe you could just describe what do we know at the moment? What we know at the moment is that the Turkish government has the, the full proof that Mr. Khashoggi was killed inside the, the consulate, and we know the identity of the killers. Uh, and it's absolute, uh, no doubt, that the, the Saudi team, the 15-member team, including two members of the uh, Crown Prince uh, bodyguard, uh, were involved in the crime. Uh, and uh, the Turks are waiting to negotiate some kind of a deal between them and the Saudis and, and I think even the Americans, because this is uh, now becoming an international incident. And uh, uh, the king's nephew and governor of Mecca is in Ankara meeting with, with President Erdogan uh, to come to a solution or to an, uh, an exit out of this uh, uh, um, uh, out, out of this crisis. Uh, Mr. Khashoggi is, is dead. And uh, he was killed in a very horrific manner, I would say ISIS-style uh, murder. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Hang on just a second, because I want to bring in Toby Harshaw, Bloomberg Opinion Editor, to comment on this. Toby, why should Americans pay attention to the disappearance of a Saudi dissident journalist? Well, I think we should uh, pay attention to the disappearance of all journalists. Um, I think that given the, the, the tremendous support that the Trump administration, uh, particularly the president and uh, Jared Kushner, have given to the Saudis, which uh, many people saw as them giving the green light, for example, to their attempts to isolate Qatar, um, to continue prosecuting this disaster of a war in Yemen, um, that, uh, you know, and and support for uh, for Mohammed bin Salman, the the Crown Prince who really runs the country, um, that we need to look at that policy and think about uh, whether we have to be more critical. Well, uh, Ali Al Ahmed, the president said that he spoke earlier with the King of Saudi Arabia and described the conversation that the king denied any knowledge of whatever may have happened to, as he says, quote our Saudi Arabian citizen. Do you believe that that is the content, content of that conversation? Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Obviously, I was not listening in. But I would want to say that this is the greatest involvement of an American president ever in any uh, issue relating to Saudi human rights uh, uh, violation. Uh, so you give Mr. Trump his, his due. He has been the, the most vocal. Uh, you might not like his position, but he has spoken about it more than any American president. All the Americans, in fact, combined. That, that's the reality. I followed all the American presidents, uh, their statements on, on Saudis. So this is surprising uh, and maybe refreshingly so. Uh, uh, I, of course, King Salman might not have been aware of it because he's, he's, not, he's not that uh, healthy especially because he has a, a problem with, with his, uh, you know, amnesia and so on. Uh, but definitely it is done by people in the royal uh, palace uh, close to him. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. But uh, you cannot believe the, uh, politicians in general, especially despotic ones. Uh, uh, the reality is 
Mr. Trump, I think, also will use this to gain some 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 favors with the, with the ruling family, and and uh, or maybe in terms of having MBS the conference deliver on his uh, promises that he he failed to do so in terms of uh, investing in, in certain uh, projects or, or delivering uh, certain policies in the region. So I I really think this is uh, going to continue because it's not about the killing of Jamal Khashoggi alone, which is deserving, obviously, but it has to do with other policies that the uh, Mohammed bin Salman is carrying out. And I think Mohammed bin Salman is uh, what I call is growing his own wings. He wants to be more independent. He's carrying his own vision. Uh, he wants to do things without America's uh, support or approval. And I think that you will see that uh, coming uh, in the next few weeks with uh, maybe changing the oil production uh, and uh, realigning his position in, in the region vis-a-vis Iran, vis-a-vis the war in Yemen, which the U.S. supported from the Obama administration time. Uh, Mr. Al-Ahmed, just quickly, uh, do you have separate intelligence information other than what the Turkish government has released or said in uh, concerning the fate of uh, Mr. Khashoggi? My my source is uh, in Turkey, and he heard the video. Uh, he heard the audio of the killing, and saw the the collaborating videos that that put the killers in in, the, in that space of time in the consulate uh, uh, during uh, before Mr. Khashoggi entered and after he was killed. Uh, so everything there, I, I I know the individual who who actually watched it. He is close to the government, but he's a friend of Jamal Khashoggi and somebody I know. So he actually saw it. So I'm not, I have no doubt. Uh, my uh, additional information separately, and I hope uh, uh, the, the U.S. government, the Turkish government will contact us. We have information on the team that we have obtained through our own sources in the country, through the palace. Right. So we have more information uh, that we, we, have, we, we own right now. Toby Harshaw, just to come to you for 30 seconds, what would this issue do to U.S.-Saudi relationships vis-a-vis arms sales? Uh, well, as you know, the, Congress has been uh, tossing around the idea of boycotting or, or putting limits on arms sales to Saudi Arabia based on uh, the civilian casualties in Yemen. I think this could, you know, obviously put uh, give more support to that and put a lot of pressure on uh, the White House to actually join in. Thanks very much for being with us, gentlemen. Toby Harshaw, Bloomberg Opinion Editor, and Ali Al-Ahmed, founder and director of the Institute for Gulf Affairs in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.